Well, good morning. On the 23rd of November 1943, Lancaster bombers left Cambridgeshire, the airfield at Cambridgeshire, Britain's new bomber, the Lancaster bomber, which had been commissioned only a year before in the middle of the war, to fly to Berlin to bomb the German capital. They were designed for nighttime bombing, so the timing of the raid was such that as they flew across Germany, night was falling, and this a group of aircraft arrived near Berlin. They saw the city of Berlin. They could see the lights below. They got through that far. And one of the squadron of, of Lancaster bombers uh, was hit by anti-aircraft fire just on the outskirts of Berlin. There were six crew aboard, gunners, those in the, uh, dealing with the bombs, they had a huge payload of bombs, one of the biggest payloads of any aircraft in the Second World War era. And the flight crew on the deck, navigator, pilot. And as they heard the thud of uh, the anti-aircraft fire hitting the lower part of the aircraft, they pretty much knew what was likely to happen. The pilot decided to count to 30 before he left the controls, 30 seconds, whilst people got their parachutes on if they weren't on already. He counted all the way through to 18. As he spoke the, the, this 18th second, the aircraft blew up. The five other aircrew had not had time to leave the aircraft and were killed. The pilot in the cockpit was blown out of the aircraft through the glass, through the canopy, into the night sky over Berlin. He had his parachute on and his parachute worked fine and he drifted down into the darkness as the debris fell from the sky into the city of Berlin, the capital of Germany, Hitler's base, alone. And he landed in the garden of a suburban house on the outskirts of the city. He was quickly captured and imprisoned and he became a prisoner of war for the next nearly two years until his group of prisoners of war were liberated by the Allies as they enclosed uh, their uh, uh, attacks around Berlin uh, just as the Nazi regime fell in the first half of 1945. There's a reason I'm telling you this story. But let me just show you some photos. This is the person I'm talking about. His name is Jim Penny a working-class boy from Glasgow who joined up in the RAF, trained as a pilot, and was given the role of being one of the first pilots of the new Lancaster bomber as they came off 
production and got into service in 1942. Here he is at the controls of the Lancaster. And the next photo gives you the aircraft, if you're not familiar with wartime aircraft. This is the famous Lancaster bomber, which you'll often see uh, in photos of the war and in aerial displays, along with the Hurricane and Spitfire fighter aircraft, which were the companion aircraft for so much of the European sphere of activity. The next photo shows Jim on the left with the flight group. These are the people who died that night. Every one of those men died, more or less instantaneously, at the moment when the Lancaster bomber exploded above the city of Berlin. And finally, here is Jim Penny in his retirement. He stayed in the RAF and eventually came to RAF Shawbury and he retired from the RAF in the 1970s and he took up school teaching. And that's where I met him. Because he was a friend of mine. He and I taught together in Mealbray School in the mid to late 1980s as he was just approaching retirement. I remember his retirement party. And here he is as an old man in his 80s or even his 90s talking to school children in Telford. He went round schools and gave talks about the Second World War and about Bomber Command and his experiences. He even wrote a book and he called it The Lucky Penny. And after he retired, I went to his home on a number of occasions because he was a friend. And he would tell me about his wartime experiences and he would ask me the question, why did I survive? Jim Penny died about three weeks ago. And there was an article about him in the Chronicle. He is my last living connection with the active service personnel of the Second World War and he's died. So I, like many of you, have no personal connection with anyone who fought in the war or survived the war because the years have rolled on and age Old age has taken that generation. Jim Penny died at the age of 97. And so you and I, generally speaking, there'll be a few exceptions in the room, but not many, have no living connection with the generation who fought in the war. My father fought in the war for five years in India, but he's died. My uncle fought in the war for five years in the Middle East and North Africa and Palestine, but he's long since died. My aunt served in Bletchley Park as a codebreaker all the war, and her lips were sealed thereafter, but she died many years ago. All my immediate family on my father's side, they gave at least five years of their lives for the war effort. Miraculously, they all survived. Miraculously, Jim Penny survived. Why did I survive? He would ask me over a cup of tea in his home as he'd retired. Why was it me? What about my friends? A kind of unanswerable question that he lived with for the rest of his life. We lose that 
human connection with the passing of time. But we don't lose knowledge because we have so much knowledge about the Second World War and so much knowledge about the First World War and other wars that have taken place. But remembrance has a powerful effect on the human imagination and it's particularly poignant for me today for two reasons. One, the loss of my friend, which I deeply regret. And secondly, because today, in fact, more accurately, tomorrow, marks a very important point in our national culture. Because this is the hundredth year since the first act of remembrance. And a special monument called the Cenotaph was commissioned at the end of the First World War, which many of you will have visited or seen and everybody knows in London, in Whitehall, right in the middle of uh, government and Westminster in the centre of our nation, is this remarkable monument which we call the Cenotaph, which li literally means an empty tomb. And here is a picture from the very early days, perhaps about 1920 or 1921, I can't be exactly sure from the photograph, one of the very earliest acts of remembrance. And in those days, in the big cities of our nation, in the towns, sometimes even in the villages, everything came to a complete standstill. And in London, for two minutes on this particular moment, say about 1920, literally everybody stopped. The buses stopped. The taxi drivers stopped their journey halfway through the journey. The shopkeeper decided he wasn't going to serve you until the two minutes had passed. People walking along the streets would put their bags down on the street and bow their heads in silence. That's what remembrance was in that point, those poignant early days. But what is it to us? It's a different experience. And yet it is an important experience, isn't it? And that's why in this church we... We, we recognize Remembrance Sunday and we take consideration of it. But what I want to do this morning is two things. I want, first of all, just to reflect on the last hundred years since the Cenotaph was built and these acts of remembrance were instituted all over our country in all sorts of different contexts. And what I want to do for a moment is just come with, ask you to come with me in your imagination as we consider the issue of war and peace in our nation at 20-year intervals from that moment to now. Can you imagine that? 1919 is our starting point. A year after the end of the great First World War. But let's have a little bit of an imaginative reflection about what has been going on in those last hundred years. And then I want to move from there and get another more spiritual perspective. So if we fast forwarded 20 years from that moment in 1919 when remembrance came, we'd find ourselves in November 1939. And we were at war again. War had been declared on the 3rd of September by the British government against Adolf Hitler. It's only 20 years since the end of the Great War. The British Expeditionary Force, several hundred thousand soldiers had entered 
Northern Europe, Belgium and France during September and October. But Hitler had not yet moved his troops into France and Belgium. It's a period known as the Phony War. The war had started, but the war hadn't really started on the ground. That's 20 years after that great act of remembrance, that great war to end all wars. It was only 20 years, and an even greater war was, was upon us in Europe with even more devastating consequences, with even higher levels of casualties than the First War. Unbelievable, though, that may have been. That was 1939, 80 years ago today. If we'd lived 80 years ago today, we'd be an anxious people because we'd be at war. We knew that something terrible was happening in Europe and it was going to have a deep impact on our nation. And it was only a few weeks after that that Hitler launched his troops against the British forces and the French forces and drove them back to the coast and they escaped through Dunkirk in miraculous circumstances. 330,000 British and other soldiers escaped Dunkirk in a way that nobody believed was humanly possible. That's 80 years ago. Now, 60 years ago, 1959... Are you still with me? We're just doing a 20-year cycle here. The year I was born represented a different era. This is the era of the post-war peace. And our nation in 1959 can genuinely be said, 60 years ago, to be living in peace. But the seeds of conflict are sown throughout the world on a continual basis. And just as I was born, the first stirrings of the Vietnam War took place in Southeast Asia. And the day after I was born, the first shot was fired in the Basque separatist movement in Spain, which led to 40 years of conflict in Spain and thousands of casualties. So even as our nation was at peace in 1959, war was in the world and in many other places too. There were civil wars going on in a number of other nations. So that's 1959. What about 1979? We're coming into living memory for many of you soon. Some of you younger ones still weren't born at this point. 1979. Two very significant things happened in 1979. For 15 years, in a British colony called Rhodesia, there had been a bush war going on. Hundreds and thousands of people had died as black nationalists fought against the white minority rule. In the previous year, I'd been in Rhodesia and I'd experienced it myself. And in 1979, that conflict was brought to an end through a peace treaty in London called the Lancaster House Agreement. and the country of Zimbabwe was born. But also in 1979, just a few months before, in, in the early part of the year, the country of Iran <coughs> experienced the revolution, the violent revolution, which overthrew the traditional ruler known as the Shah and brought in a strict Islamic government. This is the first time such a government had been put in place in the modern era and led 
to a great rise of the culture of Islamic extremism around the world. That seed has seen much destructive fruit. And that seed was sown 40 years ago. And then finally, in 1999, what was going on then? Well, we had, astonishingly, a war in Europe, in Yugoslavia, ex-Yugoslavia, the countries of Bosnia and Kosovo and Serbia and the other nations there had been engulfed in conflict and the Kosovo conflict came to a crisis. And so if you've been thinking much about it 20 years ago, British aircraft were flying in eastern, southern eastern Europe and British troops were being deployed in different areas there as that ethnic conflict was gradually being resolved. Now what's the point of our conversation? The point is this, there's no war to end wars. Wherever we look in human society, in any era of history, we see the risk of war is always present. But the other, war is always destructive, but war can be redemptive in some cases, and we still understand the Second World War to have been redemptive in the sense that it rid our world of Nazism in a formal military national sense. And that was indeed a very, very dark evil that clouded Western civilization and threatened to engulf it. But the way I see my life, and I hope you see your life, is that we are living still in the legacy and the dividend of the success of the conclusion of the Second World War. Because our nation, broadly speaking, in Europe and largely in the world, for most of the time since then, has been at peace. It's something that's so easy to take for granted. But it's such a profound reality to be thankful for that we live in a country and in a part of the world which is, generally speaking, at peace. Would you agree with that? This is a peace dividend that is not an eternal ticket to happiness for future societies. It's something that's going to have to be fought for in the years to come. And even now, it's under threat. The 20th century has been, without any shadow of doubt, the most violent history, uh, most violent century in the history of mankind. What will the 21st century end up being? As yet, we don't know the answer to the question. But as I was thinking about this topic, I thought that one of the challenges of remembrance is connecting it in a meaningful way to Christian discipleship today. What is the ultimate significance of these events? We Christians are called to be peacemakers. War is not our language. War is not our culture. War is not our instinct. Our instinct is to bring peace. Our instinct is the church is an international community that embraces all races and cultures and nations and peoples. 
Our instinct and our understanding is that war almost always has a negative effect on the growth of the church. And the conflicts that we've spoken of just briefly now have almost in every case had a detrimental effect on the advance of the gospel. War is not favourable for the gospel of Christ. That's why Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2 when he says you're praying for the kings and the rulers and authorities asks us to pray for peace. Have you noticed that in 1 Timothy chapter 2? Paul instinctively understood that in situations of conflict and war the church will suffer and its message will be hindered, generally speaking. So we are those for whom peace is valued and who seek peace and who pray for peace. But I want now to connect this narrative, which is really a cultural narrative, a national narrative, a personal narrative. I want to go beyond all that for a moment. And as I was reflecting on this talk, it occurred to me that there was an interesting moment in Jesus' life when his disciples asked him a very searching question or series of questions about the future. It's right at the end of Jesus' life, recorded, and we're going in a moment to Matthew 24, parallel passages in Luke 21 and Mark 13. We're going to Matthew's account. At the very end of Jesus' life, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's looking at the temple. He makes a prediction that the temple is going to be destroyed at some point in the future, which is a pretty big shock to his disciples. And then they ask him, A searching question which provokes some very interesting answers. Let's look briefly at Matthew 24 and verse 1. We're going to read the first uh, (coughs) three verses initially. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked. Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? An interesting series of questions. Jesus had predicted the temple was going to fall And they wondered whether this was to do with his return in power and glory, which they already believed in. And so they asked him a series of questions. And they asked him, when is your coming and when is going to be the end of the age? He gives a long and complex answer to this question with different facets. And we're going to look at the early part of what he says, where he gives an overview of the historical process he anticipates happening from the time that he is speaking until his return. Verses 4 to 8. Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I'm the Messiah and will deceive many. You'll hear of wars and rumours of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of birth pains. Jesus doesn't promise an easy life for his 
disciples. He actually warns them that wars will take place on a regular basis throughout the history of the church. And that this will be the lived experience of Christian disciples, that they will experience wars. Terrible wars will take place from time to time in different parts of the world. It will be the lived experience. And there will also be natural disasters and human suffering caused by other things. Famines, earthquakes, epidemics, which are mentioned in Luke's account. And so he warns them that there's suffering coming in the world in the era of the church. And he also warns them about false messiahs. Did you notice that right at the beginning? False prophets. Well, we consider false prophets very often to be those who, bring, who, who start a cult or something like that. And indeed, they are. But I think there's a wider reference here. Some of the warmongering leaders who've caused the greatest destruction in humanity have the status in my mind of false prophets. Can I say this? In a wider sense of the word, Hitler was a false prophet. He created a religious and a cultural and an ethnic system that was anti-Christian. Mao Zedong, who took over China, was a false prophet in this context. Someone who brings adulation to themselves, who creates total loyalty from humanity, who creates a cult of following, who creates a military hierarchy, who brings about terrible destruction. We've seen false prophets of all sorts of different kinds in human history. This is one type. And then at the end of these verses, we find a most moving and powerful metaphor. The age that we live in is described by Jesus as like being the birth pangs of a woman approaching the birth of a child. Now, this is one of the most moving metaphors Jesus has ever used, and I've reflected on this a lot. Now, it's not that I know anything about this, but I have observed, and I've also listened to the testimony of many women. And this much I know, that the advance of labour the advance of pregnancy towards labour involves in almost all cases an increase of pain and discomfort and distress and when you get into contractions we move from the practice contractions to the real contractions to the intensification to the speeding up until we get to the birth. And so the metaphor of birth pangs involves a process where there's immense hope at the end of the process but a definite process of suffering in the middle which is going to intensify towards the moment of hope. Now that makes a lot of sense to me in terms of understanding our world. Because Jesus essentially is saying as these dark things happen and birth pangs come across the world there is still hope of something to come which is going to bring it all to an end. And by the way, that hope is not the United Nations. I believe in the United Nations, by the way, but I don't have faith in their capacity to bring in this result. Our whole world will experience, and perhaps even is experiencing, greater convulsion and uncertainty and threat of war and dislocation as the approach of Christ draws nearer.
So there's hope and there's realism. But there's a few more verses to come and these aren't easy verses. <clears throat> because opposition to the church will rise and we'll see a, something happening in the church where there'll be a strengthening of the truth and a falling away of nominal faith. And it's described in verses 9 to 14 with which I'm going to end this talk. But let's just read these verses together. Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. You'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. Many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And on a more positive note, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. The end is a reference to the second coming of Christ, which he describes fully later on in this passage. Now this is a very perplexing and challenging passage and it appears with the passage of time that where there is nominal Christianity... You know what I mean by nominal Christianity? People just going along with Christianity through culture. It's going to fade away under the pressure. It's already happening, by the way. Nominal Christianity is fading in our world. But true believers stand firm. And in verse 14, even as the world sinks into darkness, the birth pangs of the new age of Christ... The gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. That tells us there's also going to be a very strong church. Because how is that gospel going to be preached to all nations without a very strong and committed body of people to do so? So what Jesus is prophesying is a purification of the church in the end times. The nominalism might fall away, but the passion of those who believe will be so great that they will take the gospel to all parts of the world until Christ comes again. Now this is quite a sobering reality, but we're now integrating human experience in the 20th century with a wider perspective of Christ teaching his disciples. And the astonishing thing about the 20th century is we describe it as the bloodiest century in human history, and it is unambiguously true. But amazingly, it is also the century of the fastest ever growth of the church. So the conviction of the church, the empowerment of the church, the capacity of the church to respond to these difficulties in the world is going to grow and develop even as the challenges grow and develop. We have seen graphic examples of this in our world which should give us incredible hope. When the Iranian revolution came in in 1979 that I mentioned all foreign missionaries were expelled and any Iranian believers could be numbered by a handful. But now we know of hundreds of thousands of believers in that country. Mao Zedong's declared aim in China 
was to wipe spirituality out of the Chinese psyche, whether it's Buddhism or Confucianism or Christianity. He hated them all. And his desire was to get rid of any spiritual urge. And he wiped the slate clean in the Chinese people. And guess what? No one can live with a vacuum. And in came the gospel. And millions of people are following Christ in China today. The Russian communists declared that God was dead in 1917. But communism's been overthrown and the church has revived in Russia. And so, there's a paradox. And as we come into remembrance, we come into a much wider and complex paradox, biblically, that we need to engage with as disciples. Wars come and they go. They cause great suffering. They don't advance the cause of the gospel. They purify the church. Nominal believers fade away. They're scandalized by war. How could God allow this? And so numbers of traditional believers have faded in our nation, for example, and in Germany and in France and all the way across Europe. But the true faith never dies. The seed is too powerful. The spirit is too powerful. It keeps reviving and it keeps growing in unexpected places. And so we thank God as we are in this moments of remembrance we thank God for the peace dividend that we still experience in our country are you thankful for that I'm overwhelmingly thankful for it as I look back and I have many reasons to be thankful but we're also realistic we need to seize our opportunities we need to trust God we need to be realistic about conflicts that could arise in our world at any time And we need to thank God for his great faithfulness. Hitler wanted to abolish Protestantism in Germany. He failed. Idi Amin in Uganda wanted to destroy the Anglican Church. He failed. The false messiahs and false prophets will never ever succeed in overturning the power of the gospel. So we want to celebrate God's faithfulness today, don't we? We want to remember the people we're connected with, the families we know uh, to do with the war, the Second World War, and other military conflicts in the intervening period, which I haven't mentioned, but which are important for us, the Gulf Wars, the Falklands War, and other wars which have affected people even sitting in this room that British personnel have been involved with. But I want to just come back to Christ and to his word, and let his word shape our response and say, we're not expecting a miracle solution to the world's problems. We're expecting difficulties will continue, but we do expect that the true church is powerful and dynamic enough to meet every challenge because of the faithfulness of God. Let's have our musicians, please, and let's stand together, and let's put up on the screen, Greatest Thy Faithfulness, with which we will conclude.